Primary Care Knowledge Boost, Health Inequalities in General Practice, Dr. John Patterson. Hello and welcome to Primary Care Knowledge Boost. Today we are speaking to Dr. John Patterson about health inequalities. John is a GP at Hope Citadel and he is also the medical director at Hope Citadel as well um, and also works as the chief clinical officer at the CCG in Oldham, um, which role is about to change, but for now that's where um, he's working. Um, and he's also involved in the um, board for reform um, of the NHS services in um, Manchester. Yeah, lots of different hats, as we said in the podcast. <laughs> um, but it's the second of the two talks that we've done recently on health inequalities. Last week, we spoke to Dr. Laura Nielsen, um, and she introduced the topic in general and why it's a passion of hers. Um, and the two work together, as you'll hear, and they're both incredibly passionate about it. It's worth probably listening to Laura's talk first, because she does explain some of the background a bit. So this is the second of the two parts, really. She'll explain a bit more about Hope Citadel and about focus care as well yep exactly um, and then john today he goes on to talk um, to us a little bit about definitions again and, and what he thinks um, about social determinants of health and health inequalities and why they're important but also gives us a bit more of the bigger picture things that are happening nationally um, a bit about his journey into leadership um, within the area and some tips um, for what people can do both working on the ground and in positions of power um, if you are interested in health inequalities yep and as ever at the end of the episode we'll be back to share our learning points would you mind introducing yourself and telling us a bit about your current role, if that's all right? Absolutely. So, hi, Sarah and Lisa. Thank you for the invitation. My name is Dr. John Patterson. I am a GP, first of all, uh, professionally. I am the medical director of Hope Citadel. And in the last couple of years, I have been the chief clinical officer of Oldham CCG. And now that is changing to a role of associate medical director for NHS Greater Manchester for Oldham area. Lots of hats. <laughs> um, so if we start by thinking about the common terms that are used in relation to health inequalities, um, one of them is social determinants. Um, so when people talk about social determinants of health, what, what do they actually mean? So it's really interesting. I'm, I'm sure you'll have covered this before. Angus Dayton and Michael Marmot play out the fact that they have a big debate about this, about what's more important. So social, social determinants of health are sort of the building blocks, the how your early years started, the genes you were born with, uh, the education you were given, the life chances you were given, and the fact that health inequalities tend to accumulate and multiply on top of each other. But there was this big debate about whether it was health created wealth or wealth created health and what was more important. But I, I remember Michael saying, We've come to a easy agreement, which is that they both have the same building blocks. And so those building blocks are the social determinants. And I suppose it would be remiss of me not to, I, I promise to avoid many hobby horses, but one hobby horse is um, being quite active on social media. About five years ago, there seemed to be a real division in general practice between GPs who cared about the social determinants and GPs who thought we're so busy, we're just going to do the pills and we're going to do straightforward diagnosis, orthodox medicine. And you would get, you know, a GP in Portsmouth who was prescribing sub feeds for families in poverty. And then that would really polarize uh, the Twitter sphere. But the way I understand it is it's really about who wants to get ahead of their problems. Because if you don't address the social determinants of health, then the consequences will come to you in long-term conditions in mental health deterioration in poverty problems that are absolutely general practice so for me I, i'm not saying we should do it all ourselves but it is our business 
because they are the social determinants of health. And this is about getting ahead of problems, which I think is good medical practice. Yeah, and that answers the next question about why we should care and why it's important. So very efficient. Mm. The The other term that's used a lot is health inequalities, which has kind of been our focus with both Laura last week and a little bit today. And she gave us her take, but it might be nice to hear how you explain health inequalities um, and get your perspective, what the term means to you. I've seen lots and lots of really erudite academic paragraphs written about this, but the academic paragraphs don't get you to work on a, on a cold Monday morning or keep you at work when you're experiencing this, the struggles of working in, de- in deprivation. And so for me, it's an emotion. So I you know, moved on to an estate and I came from a Cambridge village that was you know, meant to be one of the, the nicer places to live. And my wife, who's a youth worker, moved us on to a housing estate in Manchester. And it just did not, I was just not okay with it. There was a difference. People of the same intelligence and charisma and funniness and value were having very different outcomes in their health. And it made me mad to be honest um later on so, so so for me the definition's always been emotional of just it's not fair and i'm not okay with it later on when we were trying to work out which cohort of people would benefit best from an intervention called focus care we came up with an equation which we call fitbus which is on one side hi health inequalities equals open brackets failure to thrive which is the fitbit multiplied by bus which is barriers to universal services close brackets, raised to the power of social determinants. And that's quite important. So health inequalities exist where there's a failure to thrive, that paediatric term, and how important that's become to us in this health inequality journey. And then buses, barriers to universal services. So we'll we'll go back and, and look at that. But often, those two things have to occur. So in the early days of focused care, when we were trying to identify the households we needed, you can't just look for deprivation, that's not enough because there's some very, very resilient people who are thriving, actually, despite all the challenges thrown at them. And why aren't they leaving the country? Because if they can thrive in those circumstances. Mm. So in, in order to work out where to focus our best workers and most attention in health inequalities, we came up with that paediatric concept of failure to thrive. It's not a judgment on someone's value or someone's protected characteristics. It's just they have got, number one, failure to thrive. And in a paediatric setting, if someone comes in, your instinct tells you there's something going on here. And then if you say there's failure to thrive, that opens up 120 questions. And so for us, we look at a household and if, if the instinct says failure to thrive, we then go into the, the deeper questions. But then there has to be barriers of universal services so we used to talk about one of our early cases I referred to our focus care worker was a young mum who had a very young son who had a debilitating poor prognostic uh, muscular disorder. But whenever she went to see the family, she came back and said, John, there's no, there's no barriers to universal services here. She has everybody on speed dial. She knows how to change the peg. She's got all the benefits sorted. The housing is just, she's unbelievably keeping this amazing house for her son. And so it wasn't a focus care case because even though there was poverty, even though there was sadness and a difficult diagnosis, it was working. No failure to thrive, a bit of failure to thrive, but no barriers to universal services. However, it's a very large cohort. And we think of the three and a half million people in Greater Manchester, there's probably at any time 50,000 households who'll have that equation of failure to thrive in the context of you know barriers to universal services in the context of uh, social determinants. So that's so, so you know, um, it's an emotion, and then I try and boil down and simplify all the paragraphs to that simple equation. 
I think that's fascinating. And I've not really seen it laid out like that before. And I had written down to mention about how um, I always tend to find that um, with health inequalities, it's it seems to be focused a lot on sociodemographic status being linked to health inequalities. But there are a lot of wider issues, things like rurality, age, access to technology, ethnicity, language, all those things that can cause health inequalities. And that equation brings all of those things into it, um, which I find really nice and neat. It's good. Yeah. And and things it's neat because because we based a lot of our ideas that have gone on to be productive on everyone else's ideas. You know, there's so many great people out there, certainly better than me, who are working on this. We then do our best to learn from them. So, you know, the, the gold standard framework framework, the GSF asks a simple question for its cohort. Would you be surprised if they die within a year? So we wanted a really simple question to focus our work in terms of is the failure to thrive within a household, not an individual, but within the household, are the barriers to universal services? And then that absolutely uh, sorts it out. And again, when we first do focus care with, with other cohorts, we'll say to the doctors, what keeps you up at night? And that has proven better than any data crawl or scoring system. If, if, if a primary care practitioner is kept up at night because they're concerned about somebody, yeah. they fit into that equation. Yeah. That's really true. Yeah, that's just rang very true with me. <laughs> yeah. But it's interesting because you've heard the 10,000 hours theory. There's no such thing as a child prodigy. There's a child who gets bought a violin and does 10,000 hours worth of practicing. And there's people who have then put it into theory by practicing golf from, you know, from 10,000 hours. And they all get the scratch golfer. None of them get to world-class golfer, but they get to be very, very good. So let's twist Oh, sorry, let's flip and reframe the horror of working for the NHS. Everybody listening to this, yourselves on this call, you've done 10,000 hours. And what that 10,000 hours has done for you and done for us and people listening is it's given us world-class instincts. Uh, and, and so, so we, we tried to do it different ways. So at one point, we consented our, our, our GP population. We pseudonymized them. We went to the council and we together said, let's get some red flags of things that would concern us, domestic violence, uh, rent arrears, school attendance, making appointments for your children, not turning up, not immunized, A&E attendance, all that sort of stuff. And we then grouped them as households. I mean, it was it, we spent years, and we spent months on it. And I think some of the people in the project thought we discovered the big the Higgs boson of, of health inequalities, but that wasn't it. But what we found was of the households that had more than five flags, everybody knew them already. Okay. And of, of the bit that we thought was the potential of the four and five flags, the data would not tell us who was coming or going, who was getting worse or who needed, who was actually, you know, regressing to the mean and getting better. But if we spoke to the humans looking after those humans, they could tell us. So you, you phone up the school nurse or the uh, uh, SEN teacher and go, oh, no, no, that's all sorted. Yeah, yes, yeah, you're right. That's a family we've been concerned about. Or, my goodness me, we're so glad to speak to you. We can't get in to see the doctors. Let's do that. So we abandoned. So it's one of those null papers. Uh, it's, it's somewhere in, in, in the council. It's, it's been published somewhere with the LGA Association. And the, the discovery was that you can't beat a frontline worker for finding the people who need the most help. Powerful stuff, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it just in, in terms of health inequalities, obviously it's been your passion um, for a long time and we'll hear about your journey in a minute, but um, why should everybody listening care about it? Why, why is it so important to talk about it? Well, what was the lesson of COVID? The lesson of COVID was that we can enjoy our nice laptop, desktop, Excel spreadsheets and say everything's fine. But unless you really get to the grips of COVID, the ITU keeps on filling up 
So you can say everything's fine and you've ordered this and everything, all your ducks are fine and, and all immunized, but your ITUs fill up. And that's what we've been doing with poverty all this time. We've been saying that everything's fine, but people are still experiencing the outflows of poverty. And so everybody should be interested in health inequalities because unless we address it, we can't get the system to work. We couldn't get the COVID response to work until we got into certain communities and changed our behaviours to absolutely get back to the Maslowian approach of health and you know breaking down professional and community barriers. And it's the same with health inequality work. We won't get the NHS to work unless we address health inequalities. We cannot just put it in a box of too difficult or too hard to reach. We probably have to make a bit of effort. You know, one of my colleagues, uh, Majita Sain, always says there's no such thing as a hard to reach community. We just haven't tried hard enough to reach the community. So I feel absolutely convinced that we can hit the NHS targets and, and please that group of people who want those targets to be hit only if we address health inequalities seriously. That took me a while to get my head around what you said there about uh, not hard to reach patients, that it's just that there's actually so many barriers when you look from their perspective and their lives, the barriers mm. up to try to access the care for them is just, it, it just makes it completely inaccessible for their actual life experience. Is that is that fair to say? Yes. Although I, I would also say, I think we have to think again about hard to reach populations and are we genuinely committed to learning how to reach them? And very often it seems to be an excuse. Uh, one of the things early on when we started this GP company and we started trying to do general practice the same but different is th there was, a, there was an, an innovation about mental health. And so we work with someone for a year, we get them finally to trust us and then they trust the antidepressants and then they're ready to start talking therapy. This is a real story. It took us two years to get them to that point and they received a brown envelope that said, you must phone us in this 10 minute slot. And if you don't phone us in a 10 minute slot, you, will be, you might be given another one, but then you're considered a DNA and you will go into a too hard to reach. It took us two years and he, he missed the phone call and then we reset the phone call and then he missed the phone call. And I think we didn't realize then all his bills came in brown envelopes. So why would he open a brown envelope? Because he thought it was his bills. And we then arranged a face-to-face -face interview. And so people were trying on the other side. He turns up again. He turns up early. He's told he's too early. He's embarrassed because he's too early. He feels belittled and he disappears. And it's now been another four years and he's never had talking therapy outside of this practice. So who's hard to reach and who are, who are we, uh, you know, enforcing a system on that makes them, inverted commas, hard to reach? So work to do, I think. There's lots of work we can do. And there's good examples around the country. There's good examples here in Oldham of services that become more open. So there's a lot of issues there about trust. Um, I've just made a little note. Oh, sorry, Sarah, before we move on to the next question, because um, you mentioned um, Maslowian approach to, to health. Um, I just wondered if you'd say what you mean for people who might not know what that is. Yeah, yeah. So, and obviously Maslow had this idea of a hierarchy of needs that nobody wants to go to the opera and, and talk about culture if they haven't got a warm home. So you start off with, with enough food and enough warmth, and then you talk about you know love and acceptance, and, and eventually you, you get up to the higher, more uh, esoteric uh, needs. And we don't always think of it that way. So if you think about your traditional medical student teaching about fourth and fifth agents uh, for blood pressure or diabetic control, we don't get to any of those in health inequality practices because 
you're just busy doing behavior and diet and you know people will join our practice and we just say right let's just go back to metformin and go back to your diet and go back to exercise and go back to you trusting me and I, I remember doing the diabetic clinic as a sort of you know trainee reg and thinking right well this next um, medicine will give me a point five millimolar improvement it turns out the trust and acceptance and liking people and you know doing the Maslowian approach might get you a 20 millimole improvement or a 50 millimole improvement in someone's hba1c but i don't remember being taught that at medical school mm. nice to put it into into figures yeah yeah because okay, we, we have a series of so i've got a series of hba1c plots because we've been here for 12 years and so with the patient's permission you can see where they get on to each escalating treatment and you can see how that goes nicely the way it should go and then you can see um where the boyfriend who's given them domestic violence leaves the house mm -hmm. and they get so much better and then you can see where they get them back in the house again and the hba1c goes off and honestly we're, we're, we are wasting a lot of time in medical schools teaching a lot of stuff that probably uh, you need to unlearn once you get out which is my experience moving on to that state yeah which actually brings us nicely to how did you become involved in the world of health inequalities? Yeah, so, and it's really interesting. So I had a very traditional medical upbringing, you know, left Belfast, went to medical school in England, fell in love with an English woman who was amazing, took my mum about 20 years to agree with that, uh, but she very much agreed in the end and she was right. And then was about to go off to Singapore uh, as a sort of trainee reg to look at the gut transport in nematodes and then we discovered me and my wife that one of us was pregnant and <laughs> i then became uh then started gp training and at the same time we'd been living in this cambridge village and what i now know is pocket deprivation it's called so uh, the worst deprivation is if you're poor surrounded by rich people because all your figures look fine and no one cares um at least here we're all together in oldham but um, we were starting to realize there was a whole cohort of families that we couldn't get anywhere near because we lived in affluence and we worked in affluence. And when we turned up, it was just a, a culture clash. So we joined a church project, the same, the same one, but in a different place that, that Laura went to, which said, don't live in the suburbs, come and live with us in the city and, and understand who we are. And then after a couple of years, see if you want, see if you want to join us and, and find a help for us. So we, it's called the Eden Project and we moved to a place called Hattersley. We moved there and discovered it was where Harold Shipman, you know, had done a lot of his mm. his terribleness, shall we say. And I genuinely, I think, started a lot of my medical education again there. For me, uh, I'm playing football with a lad. He breaks his arm. I'm in A&E at the time, working there as a GP in a &E. I get him in. I get him in a plaster cast. He's there for half an hour. His mum's dead chuffed, surprised that her son knows a doctor. I see him the next week at football practice and the plaster cast isn't on his arm. Because, you know, a family relative was fed up with all the itching and why was he so soft? And they'd just taken the plaster cast off. And, you know, that boy who's now a man still has a weaker limb. So what to do about that? You know, what's the pills and potions for that? So already I knew that there had to be something more. You know, what's the point of, of going through all that training? Just to look after people who are well, moved on to the estate. After about a decade at the estate, met Laura. Uh, Laura was trying to set up a healthcare company to do things different on her estate. This is where we are now. So this brand new building that we're sitting in, you know, started off with a medical student walking into uh, my office and saying, medical school won't, won't give me a year off. Can I come and, you know, do an APEP, which is, an, you know, a year of study. And in that year, 
as I'm sure she's told you, we center around. And so, I mean, lore is the philosopher's stone, you know, turning base metal into gold. And so I was a GP with some disquiet and anger. I was doing medicine, you know, household by household, fixing our street, you know, trying to get people who were really struggling over to the practice I, I worked at and trying to fix them household by household. And, you know, she came to me with this vision of doing the whole thing, you know, of putting the chief, the most popular landlady on the estate on your front desk and reception, you know, getting your best uh, community worker trained as an HCA to suddenly, you know, start doing immunizations and phoning people up about the smoking and their drinking. And it was just, it was beguiling. It was, you know, it was like, oh yeah, that's, that's what, what I want to do. And in that year where we had to do the study and we had to do a paper at the end, we just read and read and, when we find somebody interesting like Angela Lennox or Professor Steve Field, we would, um, you know, we'd send Laura and Laura was able to go in as a medical student and they'd tell her everything, all their mistakes and all their successes. And that was really helpful for us. And so we then formed, um, so, so we, then there was Hope Citadel. I think I was the first doctor or second doctor employed by them. And, you know, lots and lots of fun and chaos and glory and mistakes and terribleness. And here we are. Yeah, it's such a journey, and and, and Laura did um, talk about that in a bit more detail, um, and and how you got to where you are, and it is just incredible, and the the work particularly, and we were hearing a lot about the GP training program and things that have been set up there specifically for deprivation medicine, and yeah. it just sounds fascinating, and massive kudos to you all because it is really impressive work. And the thing is, it's impressive implementation because I'm not too sure if we've had an original thought. Even things like focus care, you know, we have absolutely modeled it on the GSF framework, the gold standard framework, but we did it about poverty and, and injustice as opposed to cancer. And it's interesting just how conservative for the small C the service is. So we absolutely, until we finally got jobs in charge of stuff, it was always the people in charge who were saying no to us and were trying to, you know, limit our funding and um, I'm sure she'll have told you some of those stories. They are well documented here, there, and everywhere. The good news is, is that whenever people came just to say you can't run a choir or we're not going to pay you to do a walking group, the heart wasn't really in it. And also those sort of managers who were saying those things didn't seem to hang about a lot. So you will outlive your enemies. If you're listening to this podcast and you're struggling, uh, the people who are saying no to you will eventually say yes to you or you'll be their boss or they'll go off and get a job, which gives them satisfaction because nobody wants to turn up and tell, you know, uh, amazing nurses and doctors that they shouldn't be kinder and cleverer and harder working. So therefore, they don't tend to hang about. So you will outlive your enemies. And of course, enemies in inverted commas. Thank you. <laughs> no, yeah. So just thinking a, a bit more about that in terms of people with either ideas or who might be interested but don't know quite where to start. Any any thoughts about how to start on the on the journey themselves? without being a philosopher's stone necessarily. Yeah, well, you know, <laughs> crawl over glass to work with Laura would be my first advice. Um, <laughs> but there are people, you know, there's there's lots of people around like that. There's Manisha Kumar, there's Bola, there's, there's Andy Knox. There's, there are more than just Laura about. But I would, so I would say find your tribe. You know, you need to find a couple of people. Uh, I mean, I don't think there's been a time where all of the leadership of Citadel have been firing at the same time. There's always been a third of us who have been just broken and licking wounds and about to quit. And then the other two thirds keep them going. So you, know, you do have to find a tribe, but also find your mentors. We feel really blessed, feel really lucky that we find some amazing people. And they were complete outliers. So, you know, Professor Steve Field, Aidan Halligan, 
they were just breaking ground. You know, just imagine Tudor Hart and, and all those people. And our tribe is bigger, so you will be able to find a mentor. If you're listening to this, um, you know, if you're following these podcasts, you'll know that there's, you'll know the other great GPs and health leaders out there. And so I'd go find a couple of mentors and be really humble and be prepared to be wrong. I, I'm mentoring this amazing guy who will do much better things than me and Laura. And what really impressed me was that he started off one way to try, and he, had, he was obsessed about an app. And then he just changed his mind. He, he took in all the data and realized that that app wasn't going to hit the health inequalities of the population that he cared about. And so he started again. So, you know, I'm going to run through a brick wall for him because, you know, there's a young doctor who's really going places, but is prepared to say, I was wrong, right? Tell me where to go. So find your tribe, find some mentors. And the evidence base is that if you want to have an inspirational idea, you have to read and read and read. And then you have to go away and think and think and think. There's a, there's a couple of papers on it about where do where do inspirational ideas come from? Mm. And all the people who produce those things have read everything they can, and then they let it sit in their brain for two, three months. To coin a phrase, you need an independent income in a room with a view. So, you know, you need to have a day job where you're doing the work, but then you also have to find some space and time to read. Yeah. Listen to a good podcast, I recommend. <laughs> There's also some good books out there. So if people are interested, oh, yes. this is a good plug time. Yeah, yeah, we've, we've edited one. There was, a, there, was, there was a year and a half where I managed to work for the college and the college paid me to travel around the country. And here's what I saw. I saw that there are many, many hundreds of us, you know, not just GPs, just, you know, community activists, nurses, radiographers, physios, and we're all around the country, but there's a lot of people who are doing it by themselves and are essentially burnt out, or they're doing it by themselves and they're too busy to write. So some of the very best people doing the very best things yeah. who are in a Venn diagram of effectiveness and implementation are not in the Venn diagram circle of being able to write it down and you know consistently rewrite and edit. So our gift in, in that book was to find those people who we'd met on the journey and to sort of sit on them until they wrote it down. So I would really recommend that book, um, Health and Equality as a Practical Guide. So far, I think I've made 7p off it because um, that's how it's set up. So, you know, if you want me to make 10p off it, please go uh, and buy another 100, uh, 200 copies. But the, the people who write the chapters are the interesting people to go and meet. So if you're looking for a list of mentors, if you're looking for a tribe, why don't you look down the people who mm. have written the chapters and send them an email? That's how we found you. It's Joanna Bircher, who utterly loves that book. Okay, well, there are very few finer GPs right now than Joanna Bircher, I have to say. <laughs> Excellent. So uh, thinking more um, about kind of the structural and wider change, do you have any advice out there or any different advice um, to people out there who are more in positions of power to be able to make yeah. systemic change like partners, people working in the CCG, PCN directors, yeah. people like that? So I'd wager, Lisa, that the sort of people who make and listen to podcasts about health inequalities are on the fast track to leadership, whether you want it or not. I mean, I certainly joined the CCG just because I'd had that year out and all these other leaders had emerged within Hope Citadel. And so I'd have been an idiot to go back and ask for that time back and to push them, you know, out or back. Uh, and, you know, they were doing a better job than me, to be fair. So I went to the local health authority and they gave me a job. Um, and then just because I was reading and listening to stuff, I was sort of left. I think I think I describe it as I. Everybody else took a step back. There was a bit a bit of a collapse in the local health economy, and I was just there in post. And then so I was offered the chief clinical officer job, and so suddenly I find myself in a position of influence. So, 
the interesting thing is that you have to do the day job first. You know, you have to earn the right to make change. And actually, health inequalities is the business of the NHS. If you look at international comparisons, so remind me of that question again, because this is my second hobby horse. Um, if you look at the Commonwealth Think Tank, which is an American think tank, which is basically designed to beat up the American healthcare system, until COVID came along and this level of investment came along, the NHS put, always put uh, Britain first in uh, healthcare systems around the world. And we didn't score great on outcomes, which is interesting, but we always scored great on health inequalities because we don't see it because we're in the system. We're the fish, you can't see the water. But by international comparisons, the fact that GPs are universal, if you want them, that we're free at the point of contact, that a and E's free at the point of contact, the fact that, we, that no one really pursues payment because nobody who works in the front line in A&E really wants to charge you. That means that we are actually massively ahead of the rest of the world in terms of equity. And therefore, that bit, that bit has to work well. You know, I'm, my other job is I'm, I'm co-chairing the elective reform board in Greater Manchester. We have a waiting list of 500,000. Um, I believe that if we get that waiting list down for everyone, that will be a massive input into uh, health inequalities and addressing health inequalities. We need bespoke programs, but my, my hobby horse is learn, you know, serve the NHS first and then move on to protected characteristics and poverty. But if the NHS works well, then it'll do a lot of the work for you when it comes to health inequality. So that's a hobby horse. Thank you for letting me, indulging me. So if you're finding, you know, if you're a fellow, if you've got yourself attached to the Department of Health, if you've suddenly got a budget, you know, finding a tribe, doing lots of reading, uh, finding some mentors is important. But we already have the answers. It's just that the answers are pretty difficult. So at the turn of the century, the Labour government put in 400 million into health inequalities and they started measuring it too soon. So one of the things we read in that year when Laura and I were thinking together was uh, a paper by the, the parliamentary paper that said all that money's been wasted and health inequalities have got worse. And they are right in that the difference between people at the top of advantage and the bottom of advantage did get worse, but everybody got lifted up quite highly. Uh, quite highly, excuse my grammar, my mother was an English teacher. Um, and the next thing, though, is that when you is that people came along and started measuring it later on. So Ben Barr from Liverpool, Claire Bamber, when they started measuring it 10 years out, they saw that actually money spent on that program did give you an, a return of investment, an ROI of three or four, because it did start to close health inequalities. And so David Buck from King's Fund, you know, it's, it's all there. He's, he's done an 80-slide series of how to fix it. It's just that nobody does it. And everybody wants their new idea. Everybody wants to come along and come up with their thing, their program. And so it's really clear, you know, this isn't the Patterson-Nielsen program for health and equalities. This is everyone else's ideas that we've implemented uh, and other people have helped us implement. And so the fastest way to close health inequalities is focused prevention in, in primary care. So it, the evidence is there. So, and, and that there's one slide that I always say, this is the slide that costs 200 million that says, focused secondary prevention in primary care is the fastest way to close health inequalities. So yes, we need to do things about daily toddles and diet and education, but right now there are a heap of people who already have established long-term conditions and it's getting worse and their disease-free living is starting to deteriorate and their ability to work and earn money and look after their kids and to love and laugh is being curtailed because of the inequality in the deterioration of their long-term conditions. 
And that evidence comes from, you know, if you control people's blood pressure this much in deprivation, you'll get this much improvement. If you control their HbA1c, if you control their PHQ9, you know, secondary prevention. And the punt that we took, maybe the little jump that, that we took was, I bet you it's the same for homelessness. I bet you it's the same for worklessness. That secondary prevention, people who have already got established worklessness and homelessness, that focused secondary prevention and primary care could help them too. And that's where, you know, focus care came from. So go and read Chris Brentley, go and read all that work from the turn of the century and see how you can apply that. And once you've applied that and you're saying, then tell me something new you've got, because that is the baseline, I think. Great, yeah. Not reinventing the wheel, use what's already out there. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, if you don't mind, just um, as we're getting towards the close, I'm talking a little bit about the national picture in terms of health inequalities. Where are we going? Is there anything that's happening? Um, should there be things that are happening? <laughs> where are we at? Yeah. So there's um, the good news, of which there is very little, is that everybody that read Marmot and everybody that read the Black Report and everybody who paid attention at the turn of the century to Chris Bentley we're all getting into positions of influence. And so when I, and so I was asked to sit on the NHS Health and Equality Oversight Group, and it's amazingly chaired by Bowler and people like Owen Williams, and I've learned so much there. But there's a whole pile of people in areas of influence who want to do health inequalities. Um, and so the national picture is that, you know, the, the generation who grew up on Tudor Heart and Marmot are now in leadership. So that's the good news. Um, the bad news is that we now have a cost of living crisis and we're going to have public sector cuts. And, you know, as I was sharing to you off mic, in the first five years of, of this practice, we we really felt we were motoring and people were improving their health. And at one point, you know, one of our colleagues who was getting extra funding for being at the bottom two and a half percent of deprivation complained that we'd lost some funding because we were now in the bottom five percent of deprivation. And then universal credit came in and the societal structural inequalities, we feel, blew away all of our gains for this community here that we serve. And so, you know, we have to be realistic that the cost of living crisis, the mental health crisis out of COVID, the long COVID crisis, the war in Europe, risks blowing away all the gains of the Marmot Tudor Heart generation coming to ascendancy in terms of influence and, and portfolios. And therefore, we need to really add advocacy to what we're saying. We have to make sure that the limited pot goes in the right places. You know, the national picture, there's a program called Core 20 Plus 5. Uh, I recommend your listeners, uh, and, and maybe we'll get Bola on to see if she, to talk about it, or she has, she's just appointed five fellows who are young GPs and young doctors, and it would be great for them to come on and, and, and talk about that and the plans they have. So nationally, the people are in the right place, more than at the turn of the century, but we haven't got the money, and we haven't got um, the workforce. So I think... We have to do the day job first, get the money in the workforce sorted. We have to collaborate and coordinate better than we've ever done in the NHS and care settings. But, you know, I'm an optimist. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a personal optimist. And, you know, I came to this estate and there was a prefab hut, which is now burnt down. And we set up Hope Citadel with no patients and four employees. And now there's 50,000 patients. And I don't think we're the best people for health inequalities. So there's other people, and I've met so many other people uh, on this journey together that I, I think it's doable. But we, we have to do advocacy. We have to implement the best practice so far. And we just have to learn from each other and be humble and agile together. And, and you know, the national picture is 
there's a lot of people in the Department of Health who say this is the moment. Here's the next thing, Core Twenty Plus Five, and it is. It's a it's a fantastic program. If we could do it and if we could fund it, it would absolutely close our health inequalities and improve everyone else's health. The question is, is there the political and economic will to do it? Um, Professor Claire Bamber wrote a paper that got me off my seat because while I was sitting there thinking, is this doable? It'll take us till the year 2150 if we do it at the pace we're doing, you know, a family at a time. She wrote a paper that compared uh, East and West Germany unification with North and South England. And the paper says that in Germany, they marshaled the political and economic will to close the health inequalities between East and West Germany. And at that point, it was larger than North and South England. And they did it and they closed it and it's durable. And some of it's health and some of it's structural. And meanwhile, in England, North and South, we got worse. But it's durable, and it's durable on that national scale. So, you know, I, I do want to leave people with, with some encouraging thoughts. And surely society has to do something different now. We're, we're so divided. We're so falling apart. We need something different. And I suspect that that moment will come. And when it comes, there's quite a lot of people in positions to make use of that moment when it comes. It's very positive end note, I like that. Yeah, lovely. I was going to ask you your learning points for people to take away from, but that seems actually quite a nice moment to... But yeah, anything else you wanted to add, John? Um, oof. Uh, so what will happen is at four in the morning, I'll wake up and go, oh, here are the things. <laughs> so, so, so first of all, if you're listening to this podcast, you're already on the right journey. You know, you find this podcast, uh, you want to improve and be a better doctor or practitioner um, I think my professional career is summed up by the right thing is always a smart thing to do. And so you sometimes have to prove to the funders, whoever they are, that it's the smart thing, but you can. And so time and time again, when we have come into a sticky situation, it's not just that we've convinced the room that it's the right thing to do or, or our colleagues to come behind a, a vision or come behind a program because it's the right thing to do. We've also convinced some of the naysayers or the people with different levers or different values from us that it's the smart thing to do. And it is the smart thing to go to the most vulnerable and help them navigate healthcare better. It's the smart thing to go to people who can't complete their care journeys and go to outpatients and get their hip done and get back to work as well as it being the right thing. So, you know, that's my, I, I think... Uh, when I finally retire, if I can ever retire, I would like people to say that I, I was one of the many people that proved that the right thing was also the smart thing. Brilliant. Yeah, no, that is a lovely, again, lots of optimism. Excellent. <laughs> and it is, it's um, it's a wonderful walk, walk through the landscape as it stands and where it's been. You know, there's so much in here from this talk that people can learn from and start on these journeys if they are starting or add to, if not. So yeah, we'll send we'll put lots of links on the episode description for people as well. Thanks so much, John. Oh, thanks, John. Cheers, bye-bye. Um, so yeah, I think this was a, a lovely complimentary talk to Laura's um discussion previously. Um, what did you take away today? Yeah, it definitely was. And he's an incredible character. I think, like he was saying about mentors, I think the people just meeting the people involved in the projects and what they've done has been incredibly inspiring actually that it's this is possible if you get the right information if you learn you'll, you'll eventually you'll get there so I think it's made me a bit more passionate and it's made me realize that I'm slightly more passionate about it when I was kind of looking at QI projects to do 
I've picked things that I now thinking, oh, why well, I don't have passion around those things. Why didn't I pick something that I, I care a bit more about? So it definitely will focus things that I do outside of, of the day-to-day job a bit more. Um, and also what you can do within your practice as well. So yeah, it was just, it was great. He was amazing. And I really liked him talking about uh, what was the formula? Did you get the formula he did? Oh, I did. I wrote it down. Yeah, that was one of my learning points. He said health inequalities equals, um, in brackets, failure to thrive times the barriers to universal services, close brackets, to the power of social determinants. No, I thought that was really powerful. Yeah, it is. It just, it puts it all in a neat little sentence and encapsulates it. I think it's fab. Um, I'm going to take that with me now. That's brilliant. I, there was a couple of just little phrases that I'd written down that he um, had said I liked... Um, the comment about whether or not health creates wealth or wealth creates health, um, but actually the building blocks that make up both of those are the same. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the fundamental thing that we need to tackle because that's what then generates health and wealth. Um, so I thought that was interesting. And what was my other bit? Oh, um, that just asking GPs about what keeps them up at night um, or clinicians on the ground and frontline workers is one of the best tests and information gathering things that you can do. And he is so right. Yeah, absolutely yeah and the families that are known this 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 is stuff that we know like that we have got the sense of and you can tell but it's just how do you tackle it yeah. and like he says like it's it, the information is all out there and um solves have been found it's just implementing it yeah. and and not uh searching for for the new thing um using what information and research we have and just getting to the grittiness of actually putting it into practice yeah. and it's easier said than done but that uh, that's the fundamental crux of it isn't it yeah. yeah definitely so yeah thank you all for listening thanks for listening to the end as well thank you for people sharing your um feedback as well we've loved um getting the surveys back and some of the recent comments on itunes so yeah thank you very much to everyone till next time on primary care knowledge feast This podcast has been able to continue to date due to the support of GP Excellence, Wigan Borough CCG, Greater Manchester Training Hub and the GP Fellowship Programme, as well as Greater Manchester Health and Social Care Partnership. Just a friendly reminder that these podcasts are for healthcare professional education and shouldn't be used for medical advice by the general public. They were recorded in Greater Manchester in 2022. Guidelines can vary by location as well as over time, so always check for up-to-date local and national guidelines before you make any treatment decisions. The content is based on our interviewee's opinion and interpretation of current best practice. It's your responsibility to use your clinical judgment before applying or relying on information solely from this podcast. Check out the episode description for full details and any links that we've mentioned in the episode.